well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. As Kyle mentioned, my name is Jesse, and I've been here a few times. I recognize a lot of faces. It's good to be back and to see you all. Uh, Christ the King, the church that uh, the Lord led us to plant 18 months ago, is doing well, living and alive here this summer. Although we don't have central AC, we have a swamp cooler, so it's much more comfortable to be here. We have a, uh, we have a garden in my backyard where we planted a bunch of flowers, and I call it the CTK Garden because it is growing and blooming, yet it's still a little bit messy. But we as a church are healthy and doing well, and we appreciate your prayers. And it's, again, good to be back here here with you. Well, I know that you all are going through a sermon series, walking through several different psalms this summer. And so today, the passage that we're going to look at is Acts chapter 17. (laughs) I mean, hey, I'm a guest pastor. What can you do? No, but we'll actually pivot around Psalm 84, which you heard. So in, in a way, you could consider this whole message context for Psalm 84 to grab a deeper understanding of that psalm that you have looked at. Now, many of you are probably familiar with Acts chapter 17. It's the famous event where the Apostle Paul is in the city of Athens. He goes into the Areopagus and he gives God's transcendent truth to a group of philosophers there. As you trace through the book of Acts, you'll see it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So the Apostle Paul started out by reaching out mostly to Jews, and he would reason with them from the scriptures because they already held the scriptures as important. He would talk to them about a Messiah that would bring salvation because they already held a Messiah and a God that would bring salvation. But as he speaks to people that don't have that background and don't have that context, he uses a different tack. He looks to God to, excuse me, to anchor God's transcendent truth in things that they would already understand, in ways that they might grasp who God is. And quite often, when we study this passage here in church, if you've ever heard this passage preached on, quite often the way we look at it is as a guide for how can we anchor God's transcendent truth in a world that doesn't hold to the context of the scriptures and hold to this idea of this transcendent God. And that's really a great way to study it. It's very worthwhile. But what I'd like to do today, actually, is use this passage as a spiritual diagnostic for our own lives as Christians, where we can really ask the question, does this transcendent truth, This reality of this living, almighty, eternal God that reached out into the world, does it grab us in the same way that it grabbed the Apostle Paul? Does it grab us in a way that leads us away from the stories and the narratives and the culture of the world to grab a hold of God's path for our lives? So that's the question that we're going to be asking as we look at this passage today. And since we have a lot to cover, I want to keep it timely. We'll just go ahead and jump into Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles or your iPhones on airplane mode, you can go there, Acts chapter 17. Uh, We're following along with the missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and we're moving again from Judea, Samaria, and now into the ends of the earth. So this is his movement into into ancient Europe and into Greece here, and he's coming into the city of Athens. 
Now, one of the reasons I love this passage so much is, is because of all the cultures that we see in the scriptures. All the cultures we see the Apostle Paul and the other apostles interact with. The culture here in Athens is probably the closest that we see in the scriptures, or at least one of the closest to our culture here today. It was different for sure, but in many ways their values, their desires, what they were seeking in life, there's a lot of overlap to what we have going on in our lives here in the culture around us. Now, many of you have probably heard of Athens. Athens at that time was the center of philosophy. It was the center of medicine, of culture, of architecture. When you think about ancient Greeks and society, Athens was the epitome of the ancient Greek society. It was the city that showed just how advanced they were. One commentator called it the center of the pagan world's understanding at the time. So if we put it in our context, because they were spiritual seekers, but also advanced, because they have a lot of culture and philosophy going on, It'd be sort of like if we mixed Sonoma, Arizona with Silicon Valley, well, at least Silicon Valley 2010, with Harvard. If you mix all those three together, that would sort of be what Athens was like. It was a center of pagan religion. It was a center of learning, the center of innovation. This was Athens. This was the place that Paul went into. And yet, as Paul goes into the city of Athens here in verse 16, it says this, it says, now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was filled with idols. Now Petronius, the ancient writer said, it was easier to find a God or an idol in Athens than it was a person. It was a place that was filled with idols and it disturbed Paul to his core. The word here that he uses is provoked. That's sort of like fingers on a blackboard or like a knife scraping across your skin. Paul was provoked by what he saw. His soul was moved as he walked through the city and he saw idols, which really were projections of people's hope and desires for their life. Projections of where they wanted to find salvation and peace and goodness and joy. They were totems and artifacts of what they wanted to live and what they wanted to represent for them as a deeper and fuller life. And so as he spent time in Athens, this place that was a center of philosophy and learning and innovation, he walked around and he saw the projections of people's hopes and desires for a deeper and fuller life. And it says that his spirit was provoked within him. Then it comes to verse 17. It says that he went to go reason in the synagogue. Again, what he did in every city is he'd go around and he'd talk first to those who held to the Old Testament and to this idea of a monotheistic God. And then he would go out into the city and speak to others. And it says while he was there, there were some philosophers. And I love what it says. It's, it, they said to themselves, what is this babbler talking about? <laughs> and they invited him to come and share his ideas at a place called the Areopagus. Because Athens was a place of perpetual thinking and perpetual talking. And I love how Luke put it here in verse 21. He said, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they loved novelty. They were a people that loved to talk about talking about talking about thinking about thinking about talking about talking all day, every day. 
In our terms, it would be like sort of like a death scroll that you might fall into on your phone. I don't know if you've ever fallen into a death scroll where you've watched a few videos. This is not autobiographical. This is maybe some of you. But where you've watched a few videos and you say to yourself, my brain is literally rotting away. I need to pull myself away from the phone. And yet, you scroll to the next video of a dog doing something dumb or whatever. So the people of Athens were like philosophers that were caught up in this continual death scroll of ideas, of searching and thinking and talking about talking about talking about talking. And so they say, huh, Paul's saying something new. Let's invite him to come together and speak to us. Now, by the time Paul gets into Athens, Athens is past what many of us would probably call the golden age of philosophy. This is a philosophy we probably would have studied if you ever took philosophy 101, which is the philosophy that deals with the big questions of life. What is being? What is purpose? What is the source of all things? What is the universe? The, what is the unity in all the diversity? What is the universe that is drawn all together? Why are we even here? And so for centuries, philosophers, before the Apostle Paul came there, would argue and, and go back and forth about these questions. What is meaning? What is purpose? And so you'd have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and they would wrestle back and forth. And they'd often come to an impasse with someone like Perimedes, who would say, who would, his whole life was sort of summed up in one statement, whatever is, is. So that's his whole life of thinking came to whatever is, is. And he was followed by somebody named Heraclitus who said, actually, whatever is, is changing. And because I know Tim, who's on sabbatical, Tim, if you're watching this video, hello. But I know it's because Tim loves to talk about Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas even wrestled with this, the difference between actuality, what is actual in our lives, and potentiality, and how God is all actuality, and, and we are potentiality, and he brings us on that path. This is what these philosophers were wrestling about. Now stick with me, I promise this, is, this gets us to how Paul set up his speech. But by the time Paul gets there, the, the philosophers of the time were more concerned with immediate knowledge about their lives and their specific reality there. So they were schools of skeptics that would say things like, well, you know, if great minds like Plato and Aristotle couldn't come up with the key and the ultimate meaning of life, if they couldn't seem to figure it out, then really all knowledge is impossible. Really Everything is relative, and really there are no absolutes. Sound familiar at all? This is where we get to the, what we see in this passage. This is where we see the Epicureans and the Stoics, which were both part of this school of skeptics. They were sort of polar opposites, but they were both part of skeptics because they were both concerned with how do we live our best life now? How do we apply knowledge to what we can do and say and decide right here and right now. Gone were the bigger questions of what is actual or potential. And in came the questions of what is immediate? What could we use right here and right now? At the end of the day, fundamentally, the Epicureans and the Stoics were asking this question, how can I live in this world and be happy and be content? Now, I just want to pause right here for a moment and just point out to us, if you haven't already caught them, all the parallels that we see between Athens and the philosophers there in our own context. And why I think this 
interaction that the Apostle Paul has is so relevant to us here and now. Now, Athens is a place of learning and advancement. We live in probably one of the most learned, most advanced countries in the world and, and in all of history. It was filled with people who were on a constant search. Some, very few, were on a search for true meaning and purpose. Most were just on a search for endless novelty. Many used idols and what we might call banners and artifacts to project their hope out onto the world so that others could see it. Athens, by the time Paul arrived, had mostly moved on from the deeper questions. They'd given up on them for a time and were, were more concerned with how can they live their best life now. For the Epicureans, it was how can we cultivate the most amount of pleasure in our life and avoid the most amount of pain without falling into the cycle of getting bored with that process. And for the Stoics, it was how can I master myself and remove the emotions from me and become the most advanced, self-actualized version of myself? How can I cold plunge every morning to get strong? These were the Stoics. And as Paul saw all of this... As he saw this search, this grasping for meaning and for purpose and for joy, it says that his spirit was provoked. Now here's where I want to ask us two questions. This is where it turns into a, a spiritual diagnostic for us. The first question is this. Are we provoked? Are we provoked? Are our spirits unsettled within us? As we observe a world that's searching for meaning and for happiness and for peace, as a world that's obsessed with novelty and the latest thing and living life on an iPhone death scroll, as we don't see necessarily classical idols on display, but especially in my neighborhood as you walk around, you see all sorts of banners of what people project as their hope and ultimate meaning in their life. Are we provoked as we look around at the world around us? Now, the reason I believe the Apostle Paul was provoked it was that he was so taken by the goodness of God in his life. He was so taken by this goodness that later he would write in one of his epistles, I know the secret to be content in all situations, no matter what. Paul knew the love of God that was so deep and that had taken a hold of his soul in such a strong way that he would write later in Romans, for I know that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul knew in his core, he knew this love in his core. And when he saw people grasping for life in any different way, Paul was provoked. So that begs the same question for us. Are our spirits provoked as we look at the narratives and the stories that the world offers? And I don't mean politically. I don't mean culturally. I don't mean in a utilitarian way, but as we look out at the world around us, are our spirits provoked deeply within us? The scriptures suggest that if our lives are bound up together deeply with God and we know him as the source of all of our life, then everything else on offer from the world will feel like a counterfeit offer. And when we view it and we see people giving their lives to those offers, our spirits will be provoked. 
So that's the question, are our spirits provoked? Second question I want to bring up, and if you allow me to put on my pastor hat for a minute, uh, normally as a guest I wouldn't do this, but I've been here enough times I can ask you a pastoral question. How do our lives, how, if we've talked about the similarities in culture, how do our lives differ from the culture around us? Are we essentially Epicureans that lean Christian or Stoics that lean Christian? How do our lives differ from the world around us? You know, the scriptures tell us in various forms to love the world in the way Jesus loved it, but not to love the world in terms of looking to it for your satisfaction. To be in the world, but not of the world. And we know that we're wired as humans that unless we're intentional, unless we're aware and active about it, we will absorb what we swim in. We will absorb the culture around us without even knowing it. I remember... Uh, Years ago, I went to Ukraine. This is, I was in college. I went to go help do a mission trip. And I went to Ukraine, a smiley, bubbly, American 19-year-old, like, hey, how's it going? Let's, let's walk around. And after I left Ukraine, after just one month, think Soviet bloc-style apartments in the middle of the winter, I came back with a constant frown. <laughs> and people said, Jesse, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing. Life is okay. I walk along. <laughs> Now, I didn't intentionally want to become an angry person, but just because, I, not necessarily angry, but a, a non-expressive person, but just because I was in Ukraine for a month and I wasn't intentional, I absorbed my surroundings. It began to sort of plant itself within me and inculcate itself within me. Unless we're intentional, we'll absorb the world around us. Now, politicians and marketers, they know this. You say, what's the difference? They know that there are scores and scores of studies throughout all different types of universities that tell us the same thing, which is that our minds, the more our minds are exposed to something, the more our minds begin to associate it with truth, whether it's actually true or not. That's why you see those uh, sort of eerie videos of, of where they put together 50 different politicians talking, and they're literally saying the same sentence with the same cadence in the same way. It's because they know this. The more they say something and the more your mind hears it, the more your mind will associate it with truth. Marketers know this. That's why every time you see a Coca-Cola can, you see somebody smiling next to it because they want you to associate in your mind that Coca-Cola equals happiness, whether it's true or not. That's just how we're wired. Now, this is really important for us because the culture that we swim in is not too dissimilar from the culture of Athens. You could easily say here that our culture would say knowledge, deep, true, real, transcendent, objective knowledge is impossible. There's no absolute truth. Let's just live our lives and be happy. That's probably the mantra of our culture. Especially in Colorado, we, we see a lot of Epicureanism, a life that's centered around maxing out pleasure, minimizing pain, but also not getting bored in the process of doing that. Or if you're into someone like Andrew Huberman or something like that, stoicism, really self-actualizing yourself and becoming the strongest, best person that you can ever be. This is the water that we swim in. This is what we're exposed to all the time. And if we're not aware and we're not intentional, our minds... And our hearts will begin to associate that with ultimate and deep truth. Now, I don't say all of this as an indictment to us. But I do bring it up as a good spiritual diagnostic. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look for joy and pleasure in life. There's nothing wrong with skiing or camping or, or Lord, thank you for this ski day. Let me go skiing and enjoy this powder or enjoying creation or really looking to live a life where we get to enjoy all that God has created for us. In fact, it's often better when you invite God into the day. Lord, thank you that I get to be in your mountains. Lord, I do pray that today on the lift, I might meet somebody who's not high enough that I can actually share the good news of God with them. Autobiographical story, I promise. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with wanting to better ourselves like Stoics, wanting to sort of discipline our bodies and our minds to cold plunge. I, I joke about that. I actually do that. It's, it's good for you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. Nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong. But the question ultimately is, where do we go? Where do we go for our ultimate satisfaction? How are our lives ultimately different in who we are when compared to the world around us? If we took an honest inventory of our lives... Would we look more like Epicureans that lean Christian or Stoics that lean Christian or people taken by the transcendent truth that the Apostle Paul said, the love of God had so grasped a hold of his life? What do we ultimately live for? What do we look for to find our ultimate satisfaction? Psalm 84 says this, for a day in your courts, O Lord, is better than a thousand days elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he hold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. May we pray this. May this be true of all who are called according to the name of Jesus Christ. Let's be aware of the culture we swim in and know what defines us ultimately in our souls. And that brings us to our passage for today. I'm just kidding. No, we're almost at the end. <laughs> Paul goes to the Areopagus. Lots of pastor jokes today. Paul goes to the Areopagus to address the Epicureans and the Stoics, to speak to their desire to hedge and to look for novelty. And he goes to them and he says in verse 22, Men of Athens, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. If this were Denver, he might say, People of Denver, people of Denver, I perceive that in every way you are Rousseauian, Marcusean, Foucaultian, postmodern Epicureans built on an ironic foundation of a Judeo-Christian ethic. <laughs> men of Athens... People of Denver, I perceive, I perceive that you are seeking something, that you are seeking truth, that you're seeking so much that I found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. You've covered all your bases. Then he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on to answer what they've been looking for, to the big questions, whatever is, is, whatever is, is changing, what is reality? He says, God is the creator of all things. He is transcendent and, in, and eternal. And to God, we say, in him, we live and move and have our being. He's the answer to all questions of meaning and purpose. He is the one that gives life, and he is the one that exists for all time. And in him, you will find the meaning that you seek. 
God is the beginning and the end of all reality. He is the source and the means by which all things are held together. God is the answer to this seeking. To the more immediate questions, how do we live a good life? How do we become our best selves? He points to the judgment of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says that God is the beginning and the end of all reality. And God is also someone that cares how you live. And he will look at your life and provide judgment. And he calls you into a resurrected life that will give you the life of meaning and purpose that you seek. And in this, you will become your best selves and find your deepest meaning. At the end of it, he says, repent and turn to him. Turn away from the stories and the narratives that you're seeking and turn to this living God that provides ultimate reality and ultimate meaning and purpose to your life. So Paul's message to the Athenians is the same message that he would give to us here in Colorado. It's this, turn to him. Look to him to find all meaning and purpose and the path to the best possible life that you can ever live. Be aware of the narratives and the stories that you're absorbing. Repent and turn from them and turn to the living God provides all things that you would ever desire. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures and for your word and how they meet us where we are. Lord, we thank you for the deep and transcendent truth of your love for us and that you would not leave us alone to stumble in the dark to find truth. Lord, but you sent your son so that we could know you in a deep and personal way. We pray for our neighbors, those around us here, Lord, that haven't yet had a chance to meet you and know you. We ask that your spirit would go out and speak to them. Lord, where you give us opportunities, you would also give us words to share this deep and transcendent truth that in you is a source of all life and meaning and purpose. And Lord, for ourselves, as we take a moment just to consider our own lives, Lord, we, we repent from the ways we've absorbed the narratives and the stories of the world around us. Lord, and continually every day we turn to you. We pray that you would meet us in this journey that you would guide us as we walk along together with you. So we pray all of this in your great and holy name. Amen.